Hello, and welcome to the Natural Evolution Podcast, produced by Rebel Health Tribe. I'm Michael, and I'll be your host. Together, we will be hearing inspiring stories of healing and transformation, learning from some of the brightest minds in the world of functional medicine and holistic wellness, and exploring the world's best health-related products, services, tools, and resources. live with another episode of the podcast. I am with Emily Givler. Emily, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. Yeah, it'll be very fun. And I think I need to start a second podcast where I record the conversations that we have before we record the conversations because I always have really interesting chats with people before we go live on these podcasts. Emily does a lot of really amazing work and I've known... I don't remember. I remember the first time we talked... I was on the phone. I lived in San Diego. You had questions about like something you'd seen on one of our webinars with Kiran. Mm-hmm. And I remember we had a chat about it. And I think that was probably 2016, maybe 20. That sounds about right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's been a while. And I don't, I don't think I've ever interviewed you before. So this is exciting. For those who don't know Emily's work, she's the co-founder of beyondprotocols.org and a functional genomic nutrition consultant, researcher, and lecturer with a thriving practice at Tree of Life Health in Pennsylvania. She holds degrees and certifications in nutrition, herbalism, and nutrigenomics from the Holt Institute of Medicine, Pan American University of Natural Health, and Nutrigenomic Research Institute, where she now serves as an advisor and supplement formulator. She's also certified toxicity and detox specialist, And in her practice, Ms. Givler utilizes personalized dietary and nutritional protocols based on genetic predispositions, environmental and epigenetic influences, and functional lab testing to help her clients regain their health. And in addition to this work, she offers practitioner mentoring through her Beyond Protocols platform, helping colleagues navigate the complex web of genetics and epigenetics to develop bio-individualized protocols for their chronically ill or complex cases. That's a lot that you're doing. It's interesting. Our our pre-recorded chat talked about how we are striving to achieve work-life balance. So (laughs) you have the direct practice. Yeah, yeah. But it's important because when you work um, as you are mentoring practitioners, your impact can be much greater. And it's, I'm sure as a practitioner also who works clinically with patients, it's really rewarding to see the shifts in the results in individuals. But if you can teach others to do similar work, you're then impacting everybody they come in contact with. That's how I got convinced to put working with clients aside and start doing larger scale educational stuff was somebody sat me down and was like, look, what's your goal? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want to help people. And they like, you can help more people doing this. And so it's really important work. And I don't know if things have gotten more complex with chronic illness since I started paying attention 10 years ago, or if we've just gotten better at understanding some of it. So then the complexity kind of comes into scope around like, okay, it's this and this and this and this. But teaching practitioners to work with complex clients and working with complex clients and patients, there's no shortage of complexity these days. There is. And as I talk to other practitioners, I hear the same thing echoed again and again. 10 years ago, we weren't dealing with people who had all of these hypersensitivities, all of these 
overlapping syndromes, itises, the kind of collectively in this natural health field, I think we are both recognizing it more and more. I think people are feeling more empowered to have this conversation and say, you know, I know I look okay from the outside, but I do not feel okay. And I'm not just going to take, oh, you're getting older. Oh, you're a woman and this is how you feel or, oh, it's all in your head as an explanation. So people are looking for better answers. But I also think people's health is really going downhill. And I think there are a multitude of factors that are kind of converging and creating that situation. So there is no shortage of people who need this type of help. And that's really what pushed me to start working with other practitioners and helping them figure out how to navigate this increasingly complex web. It's it's super important. And I and I agree. I've seen, yeah, when 10 years ago it was like people wanting to lose weight, some people with like hormonal imbalances, thyroid stuff was really big, like adrenal fatigue was like on the front end of what people were talking about. Like that was the cutting edge thing. And then now I mean there's there's mold illness, there's Lyme, there's multiple chemical sensitivity, there's mast cell activation syndrome, there's histamine intolerance, there's way more fibromyalgia, there's way more autoimmune conditions, there's people where six of those things overlap. Yeah. And I don't know if, yeah, if we just didn't, we couldn't tell what was going on with those people then, or I think it's been a, I've asked a few people this question on the podcast. I think most recently was Dr. Eric Gordon, who's in the Bay Area and he works with really complex cases as well. And he said he thinks it's yes and there's more of them and we're getting better at kind of identifying some of what's going on, but that there's definitely large increases in this. And you implement a lot of genetic, uh, using genetic information to help guide people uh, regarding their potential path towards feeling better and or and or alleviating whatever thing is going on. And it seems to me in my experience of like the general feeling towards genetics since I've been in this field. At first, I didn't hear much about it. And then some genetic testing came out and you could test certain SNPs and MTHFR was like the rage and that was the thing. And then literally everything was determined by that. And if you could just know your status of these handful of genes, then you'd know exactly how to make yourself better. And you could just take this supplement or do this thing. And then we just figured it all out. Now there's no need for like case histories and learning all of that stuff or anything else. And then that was found to not be true. And there was almost this movement away from genetic testing that I noticed. Now, this is just in my little bubble that I live in, but I think there was a a movement away from genetic testing saying like, it's all about genetic expression and epigenetics and not at all about the genes themselves. And this information isn't very useful, da, 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 aside from a handful of conditions. Like I have hemochromatosis and I don't have the homozygous genetic mutation for it. So somebody told me like, you can't possibly actually have it then. And I'm like, okay, well, my ferritin is just 500 on its own. So then now... I'm seeing yourself and and those you work with and then a handful of others kind of really utilizing genetics, but not in a, your genes are this, so this is what you need to do kind of way. Can you speak to that line of babble I just 
throughout there and like that kind of up and down arc and like where do you see the value and why you do put you you know you work with the genetics so much sure and i would say that the genetics are part of this whole process for me and not the entirety of it and that's really the key and kind of i think where some of this roller coaster over the past decade with our understanding of genetics and functional genetics, epigenetic expression kind of comes in. So everybody got really excited about MTHFR. It was the rock star gene, not necessarily the most important, but the one that everyone had heard of. And I think it was so exciting to people because it became something tangible. You could hang your hat on this and say, yes, you have this part of you that is different. You are handling folate in different ways than the average person. And there are direct downstream impacts of that. And then we realize that we are way more complex than just that one little gene. (laughs) So when we take a step back, it gets a lot more complicated for us as practitioners, for us as individuals trying to regain our health. And I think for a lot of practitioners, when we realized, oh, it's not a list of 20 SNPs and now we can say, this is wrong, that's wrong, take this supplement, take that supplement and be done with it. That's much more intimidating to think, oh my gosh, I have to step back and look at thousands of different SNPs and then think about whether they are actually doing something or just incidentally there holding that potential in that genetic code. That's a much more complex thing to look at. And so I think there was a natural pulling back and I think it was deserved. You know, we definitely overemphasize as a field the importance of some of these genetic changes. It's not that they are unimportant. It's just that they are not the totality of who we are. They are not the ultimate determinants of our fate, our health, our wellness, our worth. They are part, but not the totality of who we are. So I kind of think about our health and wellness as a big puzzle And for me, genetics kind of form those edge pieces. They give us the context. They give us that framework that we're working in, but they don't give us the whole picture by any stretch. But if we can understand that framework, it gets easier to fill in the rest of the picture and see how things that influence one person minimally may create a much more profound presentation in someone else. So for me, it's a good way to help my clients figure out why they are feeling the way they are and why conventional interventions may not have worked for them. So it's filling in a lot of the blanks when our standard protocols are not working. So it's not necessarily the piece that everyone needs to use. It's usually not the piece that we want to start with, but it does give us additional clues that we may not find elsewhere. And it can help point us in unconventional yet important directions as we seek to find out why our own health is not recovering in the way that we think that it should be. That makes sense and seems pretty rational to me. And um, it's a way to learn more about the body of the person that you're working with and how it may or may not respond differently than other people to certain things and then give you a little bit more. It's like having a couple more lights in a dark room. Mm-hmm. When you're trying to see something, it's just a little bit more clues that you get. And you mentioned that things can influence, you know, uh, not everyone with this 
genetic mutation or this gene or this thing, it's not always going to present the same in everybody. And it often won't present the same in everybody. So what are, how does that work? Like what, what are some of the factors that influence, like say both of us have the same genetic makeup for a certain gene or SNP or whatever we want to call it. And for you, that's showing up. And if you take this one supplement, you get really sick. And if I take it, I feel great. What can cause the different genetic expression in individuals? So I'm going to give you two different answers to this question. So first, you know, we're talking about epigenetic expression and what turns these things on and off. And if we want to get into the biochemistry, it's things like methylation and acetylation, things like our diet, our lifestyle, our toxic exposures, infections, all of these things really influence how these genes are expressed. So there's a lot of biochemical answers for this. But I think the piece that is most relevant for most people and a more broad answer, but the more I work with people, especially really sick and complex cases, the more I truly believe this, there's really two things that are going to determine gene expression, danger and safety, real or perceived, conscious or unconscious. We have different biological priorities when we are escaping danger versus when we know that we are safe. And I think this is a big part of why we are seeing so many more sicker and sicker, more complex people. We live in a really stressful society. Our environment is also getting sicker and sicker. And that's one of the things that is influencing our health the level of toxic exposure that we're dealing with is getting progressively higher and higher. We don't have to be consciously aware that these things are dangerous to our body for our immune system to start mounting a response. You know, we see with these really sick people that it doesn't matter what supplements you give them if they don't do things like limbic system balancing and vagus nerve toning all the supplements in the world, all the medications in the world aren't necessarily going to help them recover their health because they are still polarized in this danger sympathetic nervous system state. So, you know, we can get into the biochemistry of what changes gene expression, but I think this is really the foundational piece. And we know that, you know, when we look at studies on epigenetic expression through multiple generations, you know, if we're looking at things like bioluminescent organisms that only start to bioluminesce when they encounter a predator. It's that this is how you survive danger. We're going to pass that expression on because we want those subsequent generations to be able to survive danger. So we have this cumulative response as well. So danger and safety, ours, previous generations, those are things that really profoundly impact how those genes are being expressed and why one person may do totally fine when another person's health just kind of collapses. It's really interesting that it's, it's as someone I'm kind of, I'm trained enough on both sides of that to find it fascinating when they cross, like I'm not an expert in biochemistry and I'm not an expert in trauma and the limbic system, but I'm like moderately knowledgeable in both of them and been trained in both of them. So it's, What I found though, is the people on the one side that focus entirely on the biochemistry with a lot of this stuff, 
most of them don't know anything about the other side of like trauma healing and how trauma impacts the nervous system and the limbic system and and all of these kind of things. And then on the other side, the therapists and the counselors who tend to work with that stuff from like a more mental health side of things and and doing counseling and coaching, they don't know anything about the biochemistry and or how, you know, supplements or nutrition or lifestyle things can impact those things. And I'm kind of on a crusade to mush them all together and make them have yes. like babies <laughs> of like these things are the same and related and there aren't sides because when I first switched sides to studying the other side and the last three years I've been almost exclusively over there. I've been really not up to speed on learning the best and brightest newest things in functional medicine. I've been studying like energetics and trauma and neuroscience and child development and all of that. And I use the term sides a lot when I first started doing that over there too. I'd be like, I come from the other side of healing, which is they view that as like the physical healing side, which is the biochemistry and the nutrition and the supplements and the medicine and that they view that as like a completely different thing. And the functional medicine people view where I was as a completely different thing a lot of the times. And about halfway through the, the three year period where I was doing all this training, I realized that my use of the word side was perpetuating that. And it's ridiculous. Like there is no side. And that what the people on the one side may observe and understand about their clients who go through trauma and whatever, you can watch real-time physiology happen in response to these things. And so I love that you answered it in both ways because the, the physiology is really just the biochemistry of the emotional or of the mental. And so how you said, it's a matter of do they feel safe or do they feel like they're in danger? And that's not always the same for two people that are in the same situation. And um, like I used to jump off planes for fun. My body would respond on an airplane now with the door open, flying 15,000 feet off the ground in a much different way than most people's bodies would respond yeah. in that same situation. Yeah, I can feel you're, you're starting to get a little like anxious just thinking about that. <laughs> And so, and mine's like, yeah, cool, let's do that. And so that applies to like every single thing in, in that we encounter in life can be really scary or or not. And with everything we've been through in the last couple of years, there's been various levels of fear related to various aspects of that situation. No matter which thing you're focused on or side you find yourself on or whatever, there's different fears and different things to be afraid of. Very few people probably coasted through the last few years and were just like, meh, this is all fine. Everything's okay. <laughs> Good. Totally Everything is totally okay. Oh, now giant war? Sure. All right. Fine. Pandemics? Sure. Okay. Um, rents day. going through the roof and housing price? Like nobody's been walking through these last few years and been like, this is fine. I, I keep thinking well, of that dog, that meme with the thing on fire and the dog saying this is fine. Well, and so we've got all of these global things going on, all of these emotional things, all these socioeconomic pieces. And we have, we also live in a toxic soup of a planet right now. And that is impacting us yeah. profoundly on yeah, a yeah, yeah. level. And I want to touch to on that, that too. Hold on real quick. You said that you may not be conscious of it, yes, but that your body is aware of these things. Can so, you explain that a little bit? Sure. You don't need to be aware that you have a virus for your immune system to mount a response to the virus. 
You don't have to be. If you did, you'd be in trouble. Yeah. Like if that depended on us to know, you'd, everyone would be dead. <laughs> so. Exactly. You don't have to be aware that there are toxins coming in for your body to either biotransform them or sequester them in fat. You know, we've got all of this stuff happening on an unconscious level. And those things still can be danger to the body. You know, when we think about things like the mast cells in particular, these are first line defenders. They are there to protect us from threats, particularly things like parasites. You know, histamine is a great anti-parasitic. It makes you sneeze and cough and vomit and have diarrhea so that you can expel things. So you don't have to be consciously aware of what that danger is for your body to mount that type of response. So stresses are not all mental and emotional. We can, when we bring in those physical stresses as well, it's one more thing that tips us, kind of polarizes us in that danger direction. So we have viruses and parasites you mentioned, and then something that I've heard you talk about and I think is interesting and people have probably heard of, but they don't know a ton about it, is microplastics. And these are, I'll I'll let you explain what they are, but this would be another thing that when it hits our system, part of our body is like, whoa, unsafe, not natural, not normal. What's this? What's going on? And that could be, I mean, you, and you mentioned, I want to say two things. One is the microplastics. Two is the mast cell. There's people in our audience that deal with mast cell activation syndrome. And so the average person who might not have ever experienced that, it's where you pretty much become reactive to everything. People with really severe mast cell activation, they have trouble eating most foods without some sort of a reaction. Uh, If they go near anything that smells like anything, uh, usually any scent or any chemical or anything can set them off. And so I just wanted to, I know we know what these things are. I just wanted to throw that out there so that when the mast cells, but part of the reason the mast cells in those people go haywire is because they're overloaded with crap all the time. Well, and it's really a protective response. And so people with mast cell activation often feel like their bodies are out to get them and attacking them because everything they encounter sets off reactions. And it can be airway reactions, it can be gastrointestinal reactions, it can be cognitive responses, it can be skin responses. There's a lot of ways that this can look with this hyper, hypersensitivity. I mean, there are people with mast cell activation syndrome who drink a glass of water and bloat to the point they look like they're seven months pregnant. I mean, it's a highly reactive state. And I really think it's the body kind of in like helicopter parent mode where it's so overwhelmed with all of these assaults that it's just reacting to everything. It doesn't want to let anything in because it's seeing everything as a danger. It can't delineate friend from foe. It's not, our bodies are not out to get us then. They're just overprotective. And this is where a little extra protective. Yeah. But you know, it's the helicopter parent on the playground and we want to respond to that system with kindness. You know, they're not overprotective because they want to protect their kid from the outside world. Maybe their kid has fallen off the monkey bars 10 times this month and they've been at the emergency room constantly. It's overprotective for a reason. And so for us as practitioners, if we can figure out what some of those reasons are, we can start peeling back this overprotective response and start normalizing it. And the other thing that happens there so often is, you know, we've really disrupted 
our microbiomes. And I know this is something that you talk a lot about on your various platforms, but our, most of our immune system response is supposed to be coming from our microbial diversity in the gut. It's not actually typically a human response. There are you know, parts in our genetics that are associated with our immune system, but it is not always supposed to be things like the mast cells responding to the assaults on the body. So the more disrupted our microbiome is if we are under assault from things like pathogens, and that could be stealth pathogens like Lyme and other co-infections. It could be viruses or latent viruses, retroviruses in the system. It could be toxicity in the system. If we don't have the right tools for the job, our body's going to use what it has. And so if we've lost that microbial diversity and we can't mount an appropriate immune response in that way, we have to call in things like the mast cells. They may not have the right tools for the job, but because they are protecting us, they're also not just going to stop if that assault is still there. So we need to balance out these things with clinically uncovering what's triggering it. And that can be things like traumatic events as well, layering in those stresses, keeping us in that hyper-defensive mode. Okay, that makes sense. And it's a really rational explanation for, you know, those people seem to be in our community, at least, the ones who are the most exhausted and having tried the most things. And like, somebody will try this protocol and then it works for them and then they find out about it. So then they take the same things and like, two supplements in, they're having a massive flare up and reaction. And it's just, that's where I've seen the nervous system work been really effective. The the brain retraining and the limbic system work and the things like Gupta and DNRS and those type of things, because they had like a core level, they will help the body feel more safe and tell the helicopter parent that it's okay to relax a little bit. And I did want to, oh, go ahead. Sensitive people, even things like DNRS or the Gupta program can be initially triggering. And so sometimes things like somatic therapies, things that are more passive, where people can feel kind of cared for and safe and protected, maybe Mm -hmm. even a first step before doing uh, more active limbic retraining. But we've got to create that sense of safety. That makes sense. Um, somatic therapies where I'm kind of leaning in my own, like I, I kind of put my toe in the water of a whole bunch of stuff over there. And that's sort of what felt the most uh, aligned with uh, what I feel right doing and good with. So I've done a bunch of it as a, as a, on the client side and then gone through some training there too. And it, it can help people set their baseline and ground a little bit to a more safe place. Yeah. And I've seen some pretty dramatic shifts made with individuals. I'd like to briefly interrupt this conversation to let everyone know that we've got a free downloadable Foundations of Wellness Starter Kit. It's available for you right now over at www.rebelhealthtribe.com backslash foundations. If you'd like a little help organizing and implementing all your learning from this podcast, a gift from our team over at Rebel Health Tribe, producers of this show. And now back to your episode. So we've talked about how the global things are going on and the, the local things. I mean, we've just been through 
I don't know, it's seeming like an increasingly ridiculous string of catastrophic, absurd things. Like, I think for the last three years, everything's just been like we went in some, even before that, really. I mean, things have just gotten increasingly absurd, like year by year, it seems for most of my life. And now it's, it's, it is scary. Like we're reaching, I mean, I just saw a report from the international, I don't know what they're called, IPCC, the climate organization came out yesterday or the day before, basically saying we're all doomed. And then there's a lot of evidence of that. So if you want to pay attention to like climate change and environmental collapse and the health of the environment and everything, there's really a lot of things to be scared of there. And then internationally, we've got some pretty scary things going on. And then we've had a pandemic and then we've had there's economic things going on. So we talked about how all of that puts the body into a state of fear, but you mentioned environmental toxins and that we're living in an increasingly toxic world. And I've seen some people scoff at this and they're like, oh, do you have a liver? You're fine. And um, usually from the conventional medicine side of things. And then also in that same article, I'll read how like 40% of Americans now have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or some other form of impaired detoxification and how I'll listen to Lara Adler say how there's, you know, 57,000 chemicals that have been approved for use in the United States alone. And only about 30 of them have long-term safety studies. And those, they had to fudge the studies to even get them. I was going to say 30 is so optimistic. That's a a big number. (laughs) Yeah. It's like one out of 10,000 actually has some sort of long-term safety study. And even those like the levels in which the things are allowed, that's a big difference between the EU and the US now that I live in the EU, is like they banned certain chemicals and food additives and preservatives and things like that. And I've had a couple of people ask me, like the first thing they ask me when they find out I'm from the US is why do you let them put all those things in your food? And I was like, I don't recall ever being asked one, but uh, good question. But you can buy like the same processed crap that you can buy in the US, you can buy here. And if you look at the labels of them, the ingredients list is like half as long. It's still got a bunch of crap in it, but it's about half as long. And they oh. don't spray the wheat here with glyphosate. And a lot of people can travel from the US here and eat gluten and not have the same reaction to it. But as a whole, we're living in an increasingly toxic world. And that is not unrelated to the fact that we're seeing an increasing level of chronic disease in in humans and animals. Like we're seeing mass um, extinction in wildlife and bugs and birds and all that. These two things are not unrelated, right? Correct. Well, we're also seeing mass extinction within our microbiomes as well. If we want to bring that mass extinction closer to home, but these are very much connected. The things we are doing to the planet have an effect on our bodies as well. We do not exist independent of our ecosystems. And even when we think about our own bodies, it's an ecosystem. We're big meat sacks for these hundred trillion organisms in our bodies. And, you know, we have this biosymbiogenesis with those, but also with the ecosystems outside of ourselves. And I think microplastics are really clear and tangible connection that we can make between the health of our system and what we are doing to our environment, how it is in turn impacting 
our systems. So I live in Pennsylvania and in 2020, there was a survey of Pennsylvania waterways that came out that found microplastics in 100% of the water samples that were tested. What's a microplastic? Just so we set that up a little bit. So microplastics are really small plastic particulates. So they are less than five millimeters in length. And then there's a separate classification for nanoplastics, which are basically super tiny plastic particulates. So one of the big problems with plastic pollution is that it doesn't go away. It just breaks down into smaller and smaller and smaller particulates, which then become much more easily ingested by by fish, by bivalves, by birds, by sea turtles, and by us. So (laughs) there are some really mind-boggling studies on microplastic ingestion that have come out in the past few years, and they have gotten totally overshadowed by COVID news. Um, you want to shoot me a couple of those in email and I'll stick the links in the show notes for the podcast? Absolutely. absolutely. All right, cool. But there are I think some people studies, need to see that. Oh yeah, there are studies that show that we ingest roughly a credit card's worth of microplastics every week. Week. That just, I heard that and it broke my brain. And I read the statistic and the studies multiple times because I thought that cannot possibly be true. I mean, I'm picturing like I think that a stack of people like to fight about cards. what's. I'm picturing that stack of 52 credit cards just not yeah, on that over the course of the year. I, well, people like to fight over like what's the best thing to eat and what's the worst things to eat. And I bet we, we could get a that. unanimous, I bet we could get a unanimous agreement that eating credit cards is not good to do. Suboptimal for your health. <laughs> But what happens? Don't we just, doesn't everything like us and the animals and all the things, don't we, if they're so tiny, don't we just eat it and then it comes out? So that is what we thought for a while. And now we are learning that that is massively untrue. So we do not, this doesn't just stay in the gut and then get excreted and end up in your toilet bowl and everybody is fine. They have started finding microplastics in fetal tissue and in placentas and in cord blood. There was a pair of researchers. So it's getting through the lining of the gut. It's being absorbed as if like on latched onto or with uh, proteins or other nutrients that are coming in, or you have leaky gut situations where it just gets to come in. We're also inhaling it. Most microplastics that we're exposed to Mm. are actually in dust, typically from the breakdown of synthetic fabrics in our clothing, in our furniture. Interesting. So we're laundering our clothes and that lint in your dryer, if you're washing synthetic fabrics uh, like polyester or rayon, it is breaking down into little microplastics. So the dust in your house is one of the biggest sources of microplastic exposure. So then you get microplastics in your lungs. Exactly. And they translate through those tissues as well. So this pair of researchers from the University of Arizona started doing cadaver studies looking at different tissue types. And as of last year, they had examined 47 different types of tissue and they found microplastics in all 47 tissue types, the heart, in the brain, in the lungs. And this is not a gut only issue. So once those microplastics are in your system, they start leaching out their various chemicals, things like 
bisphenols, things like phthalates, which are toxins in their own right. So they're particularly endocrine system disruptive. So then we get this additional toxic burden within our system and we get, yes, you have a liver, but there's a little bit of supply and demand with the nutrients and the enzymes that your liver uses to clear these toxins out. So the more we have coming in, the more we have to get out. And if you can't keep up with that, we start bioaccumulating these fat soluble toxins and their name kind of tells us where we are going to find them. You know, we don't exactly live in a slim and trim uh, environment here in the United States. We've got a lot of places we can bioaccumulate and store these toxins that we are not readily able to eliminate. And while they are less toxic, while sequestered in fat, again, this comes back to that idea that our body knows when we are in danger versus when we are safe. And this is one of those things that tips us into that danger place and that epigenetic presentation. Additionally, and this really was upsetting to learn, and it's one of those things that we've got to find a way to balance the fear. When we think about those microplastics, we should also think about where they're coming from. The ones that we find in like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is acres and acres and acres and acres and acres of plastic swirling around in the Pacific broken down into smaller and smaller particulates. If those plastics are from things like pesticide bottles, like your little bottle of Roundup that you sprayed on your garden, that plastic jug then breaks down into microplastics. Many plastics will leach those chemicals into the plastic structure. So the microplastics become vectors for other toxins. They also become vectors for things like bacteria and viruses. So it is not only the plastic that we are ingesting, it's other toxins, other pathogens, and it's really an alarming rate of exposure. Well, we have a liver, so... I'm sure it'll be fine. Totally. Yeah, okay. I'm sure it'll be fine. That's very totally healthy. fine. We have a liver, <laughs> but we have never encountered... Yeah, a liver that's never seen these things before. Yeah, 50% of all virgin plastic on the planet has been produced since 2005. You know, plastic what? is not, but the volume of plastic that we currently use is massive. Holy and, shit. Yeah, so it is a- Because we've been using it for like 75 years, but you said half of it, half of it has been made in the last 16 years. Yeah, because- Which means that the use is accelerating. Yeah, single serving everything. And we had started moving away from this and COVID really set us backwards in the plastic world. There yeah, are everything to go. Well, and and masks, like the, it is yeah. estimated that there are millions of masks that have ended up in the oceans in the past two years. Everybody's getting, you know, takeout. We're going back to you know, disposable plastic silverware, straws. So mm-hmm. some of the gains that we had made, you know, because of our desire to not. <laughs> get COVID and everything closing down, we really have accelerated that rate of plastic exposure again. So it is such a growing issue. And it's something that we in our natural health community really need to speak out about because of the rate that it's growing. We need to build awareness, both of the dangers and that this is something we can actively change and do something about. 
we can't currently do much about the existing plastic. There are some exciting things on the horizon. There are okay. some strategies where microplastics and other plastic waste is being used for sustainable building materials. They are discovering both bacteria and fungi that can degrade plastic in the environment. But for the most part, what's here is here and not going away. It's just breaking down into smaller yeah. and smaller particulates that are easier to get into our bodies. So we need to take action steps now. I actually talked to Paul Stamets at a conference a couple of years ago. He's, a, for those who don't know, he's the mushroom wizard. Like he, he's probably the leading mycologist in the world or one of them. And um, very interesting guy. And he was talking about the fungus that can break down plastics. And somebody actually brought this up because he spoke, he gave a presentation, like a two hour incredible presentation about all the stuff fungus can do. Mm -hmm. And that you can almost like weaponize various types of fungus to like do what you want. And a lot of them can do things that would be very helpful for us. But implementing it at large scale, we're not there yet. It needs to be funded. It's like all these hurdles in place of it. And um, somebody asked him about in the body. I don't know if they said microplastics, but they, they said, can it, can it do that inside of the body? And he said, if the only place where there was plastic was in your gut, then you could take extracts made from this fungus or like live versions of the fungus or whatever. But we also don't know what else it would do. So it would probably eat the plastic that's in the gut, but it may eat the gut or other things you don't want it to. And then also it, it's not, that's not its natural environment. So like we would probably kill it, like it would probably die there. And then it wouldn't do anything systemically because. We would but he said he doesn't think that that, that species could live. Well, yeah, they'd hope. But but what you're saying, how you can find microplastic plastics in the blood, the fungus wouldn't go into the blood. So like he said, it's it's years of research away from like figuring out how to use that in a way that's effective. But he said it's one of the few positive things that's been discovered in the last decade regarding how we could possibly clean up the mess we're making is that mm -hmm. the fungus, because he said the fungus cleans up everybody's mess all the time and it has for the entire history of life. It mm -hmm. just hasn't met this mess yet. But he believes there's a fungus that can, at least for every single pollutant that we've created, mm -hmm. he believes that the fungus can eat it if we find the right fungus and we do it at a mass scale. Now, that was totally irrelevant rant to what we're talking about regarding our health, but I thought it, you would think it was cool. <laughs> I. I'm familiar with his research on this, and I do think it's both cool and optimistic and definitely a better tool for our environment than our bodies. Yeah. Um, yeah, he we, said, I won't be the first one to eat it. I'll put it we, that way. And when we think about the function of fungus in the environment, since we're talking about ecosystems, you know, and thinking about how it reflects on our own bodies and how this ecosystem in our gut functions, molds and fungus produce mycotoxins in their environment to crowd out other species and to create a more environment, more hospitable environment for themselves. So if you introduce something new into your ecosystem, you know, there can easily be unintended 
consequences. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of benefits to medicinal mushrooms for the immune system, for the brain, but we should be cautious about what we are, are putting in. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, it's a little sci-fi at this point, but. Well, and I think it's really optimistic to know that there are potential avenues to help clean up this environment, that it's not all gloom and doom. You know, we are a creative and innovative species. And just because we don't have all of the answers now doesn't mean that we won't have better answers even in just a few years. So step one is stopping doing the thing. Yes. Yeah. So, so I think like that's where we need to focus. Like I got here, they don't have plastic bags here. Uh, it's great. You know those weird like biodegradable plastic bags that feel um I don't mm-hmm. know. I I'd, I'd only seen them a few times in California, so I don't know if you've even had them, but they're like yeah. biodegradable plastic bags like that mm-hmm. you would get at the store. Those are mandatory everywhere here. The only people, the only place you'll ever get a plastic bag is they let people grandfather them. So like if they're a mega store and they had 20,000 or million or however many of them, uh, when it went into effect, they still use them. But it's very, very, I've gotten one plastic bag at one place ever Mm -hmm. and I keep it and I use it when I have to carry things. But like zero, they're all those biodegradable bags and that's good. So I was pretty excited to see that. And um, I guess that's pretty common. A lot of European Union countries have done that now. And they use the same bio, it's biodegradable, like silverware for takeout things. And most of the containers are biodegradable containers. So like, it is possible. It is. And but that's no, just one thing. Like that's just right. one area. Like you're talking about all the fabrics, like that doesn't touch that. And then, so, like I mean, I'm fabrics, trying to look around, like everything is made out of plastic. Like we make, people don't realize how many things in their life are made out of plastic. I didn't until I started learning about plastic and was like, I'm not going to use plastic anymore. And I was like, oh shit, there goes most of my things. And mm-hmm. now I need to find alternatives for these 50, even buying like, I've been trying to find non-toxic uh, like shampoo and conditioner and dish soap and all these things, like even doing stuff like that, there's plastic. It's always pla- like it's. So you can get shampoo bars, conditioner bars. You can even get dish soap and stick form. You just got a dish soap bar. I'd never, I'm going to try it tonight. I just got it today. So there are, the good news is there are more and more of those options yeah. available. We definitely have to seek them out. And we also don't have to do everything all at once. You know, like you said, it's yeah. totally overwhelming when you look around and you're like, oh my gosh, there's plastic in some form with just about everything I touch and encounter on a daily basis. So as you run out of one thing, find a plastic free or a lower plastic swap, you know, looking for reusable things where we can adds up over time. I just made the switch to a an old school razor that I can just change out the razor blade and there's no plastic on it rather than like a disposable. And it probably doesn't cost $29 for two refill cartridges either because oh that is it's insane. Like, it's like $3 <laughs> for five new blades, something like that. So yeah, it's both... That is the biggest racket in the whole store is those things. They keep them behind lock and key because it's like oh, 40 yeah. bucks for a thing of razors that cost them one one cent to make. Anyways. Well, then it's a plastic rent. thing. I see you, Gillette. More plastic. <laughs> 
Yeah, but so those we, come in plastic and the razors are in plastic and then come with a plastic on top of the plastic and, and a plastic thing. More plastic. Yeah. So we can phase these things out of our life. But one of the really big exposures is our clothing and fast fashion, which both is not only going to contribute to plas- microplastics through things like a whole host of other problems. Laundering, but yeah, the end then other fabrics end up in landfills and break down there. So we can progressively make the switch to natural fibers like organic cotton because conventional cotton can be really heavily sprayed with pesticides. It's a very common GMO crop here in the US. Bamboo is a little bit greenwashed. Bamboo is not always that clean, but things like wool and silk, these natural fibers are not going to contribute to microplastic pollution. And that inhalation of indoor air is our biggest exposure point. So filtering your air, yeah. um, that's a great way to reduce- The first it. thing I bought when I moved here was air filters for my apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah. filter your water. It's another good way to mm-hmm. keep that from coming in. A lot of people do not realize that sea salt is a big source of microplastic exposure because our oceans are so full of plastic these days. So looking for a plastic-free salt is important. And there are more and more salt manufacturers who are using special filtration to ensure that they have a plastic-free product. Interesting. I'm going to type that into my translator right now to search for for later. So ironically enough, Google searching for things in English uh, in Italy don't work. Okay. But like Celtic okay. sea salt has been tested plastic free. There's not many though. Most sea salt right now is pretty contaminated. Other big, other big places where we might get it in food. If we're eating bivalves like mussels or clams or oysters, we're getting a lot of microplastic. Any plastics that they are eating, we are eating in much more high volume. So those are some like easy action steps that we can take to keep some of that credit card's worth of plastic from getting into our bodies every week. But it's something that if we're not aware of, we're not going to take the right steps. So yeah. we're by building that awareness. And baby yeah. steps is huge, like with things like this, because I remember when I used to work with clients, when I first started, I would give them like a list of 122 things they need to do like tomorrow. And then I'd talk to them in two weeks and be like, how's it going? And they'd be like, I didn't do most of the things. And I'd be like, what is wrong with these people? Like they wanted to know what to do. I tell them what to do. They don't do it. I've had one client in my life who went home, did all the things immediately, changed everything, stuck to it and did awesome. And that's the unicorn. And nothing's wrong with you if you can't do that. I can't do that. If you gave me like 50 things to try to do tomorrow, no. So yes, like find one one thing that was suggested here, try that. And then once that's part of your situation, part of your routine, try another one. And then gradually, like a lot of these decisions, they don't require so much brain power eventually because you're just used to making the different decision. Like it's um, it's not a thing that you have to change. It's a thing that you do. So then... It's easier. So, but yeah, that happens gradually over time and compassion with yourself is key. Yeah. It's so important because it can be 
so overwhelming. And the more we know about this, the more you know about the toxins in your foods and the pesticides on your athletic fields and the plastics in your body and everywhere else. I mean, they find microplastics at the top of Mount Everest because it is literally everywhere at this point. That's incredible. That's like... Gets taken up in the water cycle. That's not from the climbers. That's from the air. Yep, from precipitation. This is... We are all connected and it can bring you into that fear place so easily. Mm -hmm. It can be this high stress. Oh my God, everything is wrong. We're in this toxic soup of a planet. My poor liver, it's never going to be able to handle all of this. And that is not actually going to get us anywhere on our health journey. We No, it's more danger. Yeah. We've got to find ways to let ourselves know that every step we take makes us more safe and that better is okay. We've got to stop like sacrificing the good in pursuit of perfection. I, you know, you're one ahead of me. I have yet to meet a perfect person. And I would hope that no one ever holds me to that standard because none of us are perfect. There's always things that we can do better. We've got to forgive ourselves for the places where we are not perfect so that we can find that safety and find some level of peace to navigate this toxic soup of a world. Yes, we can always do better. That doesn't mean we can't do good with where we are. Exactly. Well, I know we're we're out of time, so I want to have more podcasts with you so we can talk about more of these things in more details. I would like to do a whole discussion sometime around the genetic aspect of some of these things, because mm-hmm. some people are more susceptible to some of this stuff than others. And we touched on that in the discussion, but mm-hmm. I've noticed when that gets brought up in our audience, people are really interested in that end of things. And like, because they've dabbled in the reading the you know, the books and they know, uh, like Ben Lynch was the first one to publish like widespread stuff around that. And like, they know all that. And like, so they're toe in the watery with some of that. So maybe sometime we could do a little deeper dive into some of the genetics, but, um, also we know some practitioners listen here. So if you could share where the lay persons who are looking for help might go to find out more about you and your work and where the practitioners would go who are interested in the mentorship and the training, which is a really cool program, which we could do a whole nother podcast about. Um, Jacqueline told me about it. Jacqueline Downs, who's a few episodes prior to this, is a mutual friend. And she told me all about it. And if I was still working in practice myself, for sure, I would be signed up there. So where do people go? What are they going to find? So, well, and I actually have a little bonus for your listeners who may want to learn more about microplastics. I did a little like one hour masterclass on microplastics with like all of the studies that I've been kind of alluding to here. So I gave you a link that we can share that will take people to that masterclass if they want to learn more. So that is my gift to everyone. And for practitioners who want to learn more, they can find me at beyondprotocols.org. And for any individuals who want to learn more about my clinical work, uh, I do that with Tree of Life in Pennsylvania. Our website is tolhealth.com. We have a wonderful team of practitioners there. Bob Miller, who has been really on the vanguard with 
uh, functional genomics for the past decade. Um, Jacqueline Downs, uh, who you just mentioned, and myself are all a part of that practice. Hey, yeah, I think I might reach out to you guys because I've got some tricky stuff with my iron that I haven't been able to figure out. Ooh, and I so, think um, like a puzzle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She mentioned that some things that I I thought I had I thought I'd turned every I don't know the phrase stone or whatever. But then she asked me like three questions and I didn't have answers to those questions. I hadn't done that. And I was like, oh, maybe I should do more things. Mm-hmm. So um I might reach out to you guys and become a guinea pig with my genetics and my iron metabolism because something's screwy. So hopefully um, we can get you all figured out. Cool, because I don't want to have to do blood things because that's really giant fear phobia. How you freaked out when I mentioned jumping off planes. That's how I am when I even think about needles coming anywhere near for Mm -hmm. blood. So go to those links. We'll have them all below. I think the studies that I mentioned in the, hey, we'll grab those study links from you. Those are probably in the... Yep, they're all in the masterclass. Perfect. Then we'll just link to the masterclass. We'll link to your websites. Go check out her stuff. Can't recommend it enough. Thank you for your time and for sharing all of this. And it's a really, the microplastic stuff, like I knew some of that. I didn't know all of that. So I'm going to have to go practice my own um, grounding somatic practices so that I can sleep tonight and not be freaked out over another thing to freak out over. And so... It's one um, more thing that you're aware of. It's one more step you can take, one more action step. So, you know, if this was the thing... And more motivation to not buy plastic things. Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm more aware of the clothing too, because that's a big deal here. So I have to go buy some new clothing because people start talking to me or trying to talk to me in English when I walk in a place before I even say anything, because they're very certain I'm not Italian based on how I'm dressed. So before my wife gets here in a few weeks, I'm going to have to go shopping a little bit so that I can um, be presentable in public. And there I'm going to go. be mindful of what the clothing is made out of. So Excellent. So wool, silk, cotton, linen, all good choices. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Emily. It was really fun. And I learned a ton of stuff. And thank you for all the work you're doing. And let's do thank it again. So. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. Thanks again for having me. And that wraps up another episode of the Natural Evolution Podcast. Thanks for listening, and please check out the links in the show notes below to learn more about our guests and grab your free downloadable Foundations of Wellness Starter Kit, which will help you implement what you're learning here and make powerful shifts in your health and your life right away. Just go to www.rebelhealthtribe.com backslash foundations, and you can be started in only a few minutes. If you enjoy the show, please drop a rating, review, or subscribe to stay in the loop with future releases. 